Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing with chapter 10, and that is titled, The Problem of Grace. And the last couple chapters have been on different aspects of grace, and then the dispute between grace versus works between Paul and James and such. And so now we're going to talk specifically about the problem of grace from the LDS perspective in contrast to Protestant Christianity and Calvinism, because they're the ones that have quite a different understanding of grace, and that's the thing we've been contrasting, saying that's where their wrong perspective on Paul took grace, and so now we're going to talk about why that's a problem. So, start out with this quote, you say, Latter-day Saints have been wary of historical doctrines of salvation by grace alone in conventional thought, and for good reason. While the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ is the profound doctrine of divine love, it has been distorted nearly beyond recognition. The problem starts when the doctrine is removed from its original interpersonal and covenant context and placed in a moral context of the operation of the will and the causes that act upon it. And so again, that's where the new perspective on Paul comes in and saying the perspective on Paul before the new perspective on Paul was the distortion, whereas the new perspective on Paul is restoring it to its original context. And as we talked about, the person that Paul is addressing is kind of the crux there. What we're going to do is talk about three main problems of grace and go into depth, and I'll just read them, and then we'll get into them one by one in a second here. First one is the problem of imputed righteousness. Second is the problem of infused righteousness. And then the third is the problem of predestination. And you'll note all of these are foreign terms to Mormons or LDS people. We don't use things like this, and we'll talk about why. But before we get into each of these, first off in the chapter, you talk a lot about where a lot of this started, and it's with, as with most things in Protestant Christianity, with Augustine. And so, kind of catch us up on how Augustine influenced this idea of grace and how that, you know, where it comes from about like original sin and all that. So, essentially, Augustine viewed humanity as mired in a sinful condition. Augustine, at the same time, spoke about free will in a way that's very different from the way that the Calvinists and what I'm going to call the non-free will Protestants talked about it later in the Reformation. But he still talked about humans as being impotent and incapable of doing good in terms of their status in the world, which meant that the only way that a person could be saved was if God essentially moved the human will in a way that it wouldn't choose on its own which means essentially that God is literally making a decision for a person that's contrary to the decision that they would otherwise make. I mean, I could go on at great length, but it would take quite an expostulation because there's an early Augustine, a middle Augustine, a late Augustine, and there are a number of different ways of interpreting Augustine, so it's a, it's a pretty complicated discussion. Okay, fair enough, but that's good enough to start us off here. All right, so first let's dive into the first problem, which is the problem of imputed righteousness. Well, first, I guess that right there is a foreign term. So what does imputed mean in a Christian context, at least? The best way into this discussion is to understand 
what constitutes good, evil in the way the Protestants viewed it. They began from the assumption of voluntarism. Now, what's voluntarism? The notion is different than the common sense notion. Usually, so if a person does something good, because the act has a good intrinsic value. So if I have a neighbor who is a widow and I go and shovel her walk, it's good because shoveling walks for widows has an intrinsic inherent value. And it's the nature of the act that is good. For the Protestants, however, good and evil were defined by God's will. And so God determined what is good and evil by his own absolute will. There are no constraints on what God views to be good and evil or right or wrong. God, in his sovereignty, decrees what they shall be. There's nothing that has intrinsically good value. It is only what God deems it to be, which means that the value of good and evil is extrinsic to the acts or to the people involved because they only are attributed to them by God in his sovereign will. So if shoveling the walk of a widow is good, it's because God absolutely deems it to be good. However, God could also just as easily view shoveling the walk of a neighbor to be evil because it's whatever he declares it to be. It's a very problematic moral theory, but it's the theory that underlies imputed righteousness. So, in imputed righteousness, the righteousness that we have is the righteousness that God deems us to have in his absolute sovereignty. And he can deem us to be righteous if he wants to, because it's totally up to him. It has nothing to do with our properties. It has nothing to do with what we do, how we are. It has to do with how God deems us in terms of his own absolute will. So that's basically the background of the imputed righteousness, and it means that it's extrinsic to us. That means it's the righteousness that we have, or whether we're evil, whether we're acceptable to God or not, has nothing to do with us intrinsically. It has to do with us only extrinsically in God's will. All right, and that sounds closely related to the moral theory that we talked about a while ago called divine command theory where something is good, specifically if God says it's good, and like you said, no other criteria are required. Yeah, I mean, we call it a voluntaristic theory because it's the voluntary will of God that determines it, and the divine command theory is the expression of of voluntarism with respect to ethics. All right, and then, then we talk about Philip Melanchthon, who lived in the late 1400s and early 1500s. He was a Lutheran German author. And he gave a very succinct statement of the Reformer's view of justification that we are talking about. He says, To be justified does not mean that an ungodly man is made righteous, but that he is pronounced righteous in a forensic manner. God considers the sinner righteous by virtue of Christ's righteousness, even though the truth of the matter is that the sinner is not righteous at all. So, first off, in this context, what does forensic mean here? Because I I watch forensic files, and that means they do science, and there's evidence that they gather. Does it have something to do with evidence, or what does forensic mean here? Forensic means that it is based upon the way a judge declares judgment in a courtroom. Again, it's voluntarism. In a forensic sense, it means that it is simply based upon God's forensic or external determination as to what's good and what's evil. When we call it a forensic judgment, it's a judgment that is made like a judge. The ultimate judge is God. He gets to judge who's righteous and who's not. And so it has to do solely with God's judgment and nothing else. It doesn't have to do with the properties of the person. It has to do solely with the notion that God is a judge who can sit in judgment. 
the things you find out. I didn't know that's what forensic meant. Cool. All right. And so we've talked about this a little bit before too, but in this view, you are actually gaining Christ's righteousness. And you've talked about that on its face, this doctrine appears to basically just be a simple case of God's declaring that something that's false, that you're not a sinner, is true because you're somehow with Christ. So with that simple definition kind of against it, there has been obviously defenses of that. Uh, For example, a guy named Millard Erickson responded and said that declared righteousness in this way is not a sham or a legal fiction because we are sinful in light of a broken law for which the penalty must be paid. However, the law is fulfilled if Christ pays it. So that goes back to, you know, substitutionary or penal substitution theories of atonement that he's referring to here. But you go on to say, it's not accurate to call me righteous simply because someone else paid the price for the very act of punishing an innocent person in my place is a further violation of the law. And again, this is back, we talked about this during atonement theories, but we come back to this very important point that this difference that we pointed out before between a monetary transaction and the transfers of moral guilt doesn't work. It only works in metaphor. It doesn't work actually applying it here. I'll just read what it says here. You say, while a third party can pay my debt and simply declare that he expects no payment for me as a matter of his grace, he cannot constitute me as righteous when I am in reality sinful, nor can he accurately declare that I am righteous when I am not. Thus, the notion of imputed righteousness violates a second cousin of the moral principle, which we have talked about before, which we can call the personal principle of morality. So that's, you define that as PPM, personal principle of morality, and you say, it is this. It is inappropriate to consider any person morally righteous by virtue of the acts or righteousness of any other person. And that's at least the way that we generally think of morality and righteousness and things like that. But for some reason, people like to take exception when it has to do with Christ and things like that. But you say, no. Anyway, what is? we've gone into that a lot before, but is there anything else in the grace conversation that you want to address? Well, it's simply this. I mean, again, there are a lot of Mormons, I think, who would believe that, you know, we're righteous in virtue of Christ's righteousness, but it's the very personal nature of our moral properties. Our moral properties belong to us, and they arise from our own acts. They can't arise from the acts of another person. I can't be made good simply because somebody else is good, and they cannot transfer me to be righteous. They can't transfer their righteousness to me. And, and more importantly, they can't simply declare that I'm righteous when I'm not. The notion that God simply declares a person to be righteous because Christ is righteous is saying God apparently can't tell the difference between me and Christ. He's not quite aware that the qualities of Christ aren't my qualities, but he's going to just deem it to be that way anyway. But if you accept voluntarism, of course, can God can declare to be good whatever he deems to be good, and as he just simply desires to do it in his sovereignty. Which would raise a lot of interesting questions on why he can't just do that without Christ suffering in the first place, which we've talked about before, too. But anyway, Erickson tries to use kind of a metaphor to combat that complaint as well. He uses what's called a corporate union metaphor, where it's saying like, well, let's say it's kind of like a union of two corporations. Let's say I'm watching The Office for the first time, and they're a paper company, and their paper company is failing. And then another big corporation comes in and buys this failing corporation, and now they're no longer failing. Now they're successful. And when you look at this corporation, you don't see the failing corporation. That's not an issue anymore. 
because they have been taken over and taken into this larger company, which is not failing. And he's saying, we're like that with Christ. We're the failing company, which is absorbed into a much more successful company. And when you look at the assets or the worth of that company, you're not looking at what they were before the union. You're looking at what they are after the union. And so, again, that's a metaphor. And then in the book, you go on to say that you, you in fact, do affirm grace through faith in Christ as a doctrine, but there's some differences there that are important. So if you want to go into that a little bit, why doesn't that metaphor work, I guess? Well, first of all, what it does is it trades what is an interpersonal matter to, again, a, a metaphor based upon monetary transactions. If what's happening is that we have a failing company and we then merge it with a successful company, I can look at the bottom line and it's a simple matter of adding up whether they have more money than they have debt. That's not how our sinful nature before God is. I'm in relationship with my wife who is a wonderful person. The mere fact that I'm married to a wonderful person does not mean that I am also a wonderful person. I'm more likely to be a wonderful person because I'm in a relationship, but certainly I can't say, well, you can't judge me because I'm married and, and you have to take us together. We're a single couple. She's super righteous and I'm just kind of rotten. So if you put us, the two of us together, I'm no longer kind of rotten. I'm really good because you have to judge me only in that relationship. That's just a failure to understand how terms like good and bad and righteous and evil and moral qualities work. I mean, it's just a way of misunderstanding through a wrong metaphor how our righteousness actually is. Yeah, and I don't have a lot of pushback there just because I agree with you. And from a Mormon view, we all see that, but, you know, we're not of this different faith persuasion that has a long history, but that's how they see it. But, you know, those are problems with it that I don't think have been successfully addressed, and that's why we don't adopt those. Anyway, let's have Jacob then move on to the next problem of grace, which is the problem of infused righteousness. All right, and this is, like you were talking about earlier, the later Augustine, and he maintained that uh, by being justified, a person is actually infused with God's righteousness and thereby made righteous. So not so much passing on the righteousness as it's infused into their being. Justification is not merely an external declaration, but an actual change in the person's being. The change is not merely one of status before God. God isn't just deciding like before to just change what he's looking at, but there's actually a, a change in nature. For by justification, a person becomes a son or daughter of God. It's a change that God unilaterally makes in the person of the believer. That's an overview of it. What are the issues here? <laughs> Well, remember, we're talking about a notion of grace, and the notion of grace, it has some contact with something I think that's very important, and that is when we enter into a relationship with Christ, if it's genuine, then Christ's life enters into us and makes us into a new person. And I think this is an Augustinian view, and I think it's a profound view, and I think you actually get something about Paul Wright in this kind of a notion of infused righteousness. The problem is when we take it out of the context of a person who freely chooses to enter into a relationship and where God does all of the work, God simply takes the sinner and replaces the sinner's moral qualities with the moral qualities of Christ in reality. So whereas before I'm a sinner because I've done the things I've done, we just replace the person that I am with the moral qualities of Christ even though I haven't done anything good. And um, again, this is to misunderstand the way that we at least assess human righteousness. Righteousness 
has to do with the way that we are in relation with other people. And it simply can't be done for us by somebody else. Nobody but me can choose to love another person. Christ can't choose to love for me. That would be to fail to understand what it is for me to choose to love. If he does it for me, it's not a free act, and, and choosing to love has to be a free act. And so what Christ is, what they view Christ as doing for me is something that by its very nature can't be done by a third party. It has to be done only by the agent, only by me. I'm the only one who can choose those kinds of relationships freely. And so it's a misunderstanding of the way that relationships work in general and the way that love must be a free choice in particular. And um, Augustine also takes this so far in that the faith is making this person better than even if a person... So you say, if a pagan lives a morally blameless life, but a Christian lives a life marked by sin, in God's eyes, and thus in reality, the Christian is morally superior. The pagan's acts may be better so far as human estimation is concerned, but not to God because of the Christian's faith. And so, like you were saying, it's not taking into account that the person doing good, God is just automatically making them good. Yeah, he's infusing them with his own goodness, but it's an intrinsic change, not an extrinsic change. This was actually the debate between the Catholics as to whether or not this kind of righteousness that is given to us in justification is extrinsic and something that God just deems to be the case. And it was very important to Protestants that it be deemed to be extrinsic because it's not anything about us that justifies God's gift of grace. And the Catholics were saying, well, what you're suggesting is a mere moral fiction, and we're not going to buy that. But they also had a, a misunderstanding about the way that moral qualities of person are in, inherent in that person and arise only out of acts of that person's free will. And they can't simply be conferred on another person in reality just by that person's will. It's just not the way that things can possibly work. It misunderstands, again, what it is to make a free choice and to be morally responsible. And then you also compare, because uh, like you were saying before, with being married to a good person, there's a higher chance that you're going to be a good person. And then you compare this, someone morally rubbing off on someone as opposed to someone actually being infused with their righteousness. Yeah, I mean, certainly I can be persuaded, influenced, inspired by watching a truly loving person or being in a relationship with a truly loving person. And the inspiration is in between us. I mean, it's something that I choose to, to notice in the other person. It's the nature of the relationship. But the fact is, it's something I have to choose to embody in my own life if it's actually going to do anything for me. It has to be something that I choose to do. And the mere fact that my wife is a wonderful person, and you can ask just about anybody because they'll agree, it doesn't make me a wonderful person. And uh, again, a reminder that for Augustine, you know, God's grace is brought about by the, the irresistible grace. That is, that God acts upon the depraved human will in such a way that the depraved will, which by its nature rejects God, is caused to accept God's grace literally against the will, and even if it would choose not to. So pretty much in, in Augustine's view, people are forced to choose grace, even if they didn't want to, because it's irresistible. You know, there are a lot of Catholics and even Protestants who would insist that the will is still free, even though God is causing it to accept a grace literally against what the will would choose if it weren't moved by God to accept grace against the inherently depraved nature. I've never been able to make sense of those kind of claims, and they, they don't make sense to me now. I view that as just an incoherent notion. So, so that was taking you know, Augustine's views on it. Now let's move on to Thomas Aquinas. His notion of God's moving the will is very subtle. 
Aquinas speaks in terms of uh, concurring clauses. God first causes the will formally by being prepared to receive grace, and then the cooperation of the human consenting to this cause is next. And then together they form a sufficient cause for the motion of the human will to choose to accept grace. And then it's compared to, you know, flipping on two light switches. Yeah, so what what this is like is is the key to launch a nuclear weapon. And you've got two keys that have to be turned. And so the captain comes and, and you're the you're the first mate. Captain comes in and he switches on the nuclear launch codes. And if you switch yours on, then they will together send a signal to the launcher to launch the nuclear warhead. Neither one of you can do it alone. It requires you to consent in order for it to happen. And so Aquinas, I think, saw this more as a concurring cause. The problem that Aquinas has is there is this first moving of the will because he also believed in both irresistible grace and in human depravity that prevented us from freely choosing to accept grace. I just think Aquinas is inconsistent on this view. And he wants he wants to have it both ways. He talks sometimes as if he's like an Armenian, and what happens is God prepares the will so that we can make a free choice, and then it's our free choice joined with God's concurring cause that actually brings about our salvation. But the problem is, is that preparing our will to receive grace, he has to overcome our obstinate will to make it so that it would be willing to do what otherwise it's not willing to do, and that seems to be a violation of free will on any account. And so this is a very subtle way. Um, It becomes very sophisticated, but in the end, it actually turns out to simply be another case of God moving the will to do what it otherwise would not choose to do. All right. Uh, And that pretty much sums up the problem of infused righteousness. Let's go ahead and jump back to Corey for the problem of predestination. All right. So as you can kind of tell with these other two, this predestination is entailed in this, I don't know if you call it a system, but just kind of this thought method started by Augustine. And it again goes back to the problem of original sin. And in Augustine's view, and the people that followed him, is that we literally are, because we're in a fallen state, we can't do anything good. The only way we can make good choices or choose to turn to God the ability to do that is not within our nature anymore. And so the only way to have that happen is if God unilaterally makes that happen, as we've been talking about. And that brings in predestination in this case. So at least in context of grace, we're not necessarily here talking about predestination as in like, I mean, we are, but like not talking about like God knowing the future per se, but we're talking about God controlling your will. And if you hold to original sin, then you have to have it so the only people that can turn to God would have God, however he chooses them, choose to turn their will to him. And the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard had some interesting observations about that, and I'll just kind of sum up. He, he's like, all right, so we're taught that you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace, and corresponding to that is faith. He says, fine, but the problem with that is, is am I making myself become a believer then? No, because only God can do that. And so, unless we want to go with full fatalism or, you know, determinism, then we're going to have to make some concessions, and the concessions are to free will. But you point out that Augustine and the different reformers are not willing to make this little concession to free will. 
Is there anything else about Kierkegaard's remarks that you want to elaborate on before we go into different conceptions of predestination? Yeah, I mean, it's like what he's pointing out is kind of the double speak that happens when theologians start saying things and you have to peel back an onion. It's like Aquinas says, well, you're saved because you freely choose to have faith. And it appears then that you're freely choosing to accept God because you freely choose to have faith. And then Kierkegaard points out, but if we read a little further, what we're going to find out is the faith also has to be given by God as a gift. And so you're not freely choosing that. It's actually a gift. And the gift is one of sheer grace. As we peel back this onion, reading through what they really mean when they say we're freely choosing, we, we find out that what they really mean is all the way down, all the way to the very center of the onion. Everything they say is freely done. There's actually a prior cause of what we do where God is the sole cause. And so at the end of the day, we've entirely abandoned free will. And that's the point that Kierkegaard was making. Well, then I'm just going to read through what you put in the book about different definitions of predestination according to different schools of thought. And then we can talk about them compared to the LDS view. So let me just read those. So first is Calvinism. We can do absolutely nothing. God does everything for some as a matter of grace to save them from their culpability for original and actual sins, and either leaves others to damnation, which is called single predestination, or specifically decrees the damnation of others, called double predestination. Then there's Arminianism, and they believe that on our own we can make no move whatsoever toward God. God must turn us and draw us. However, God gives us prevenient grace that regenerates the fallen will so that we can say yes or no. We cannot reach for the gift of salvation or grasp it on our own after regeneration, but we can either accept it or reject it. So you'll notice that's a little bit of a softer view already. Then there's semi-Pelagianism, which believes we can take only the first step in God's direction, but we must be aided by God in this step, and then God carries us to salvation. Or there's full Pelagianism, which believes we ourselves have all the resources necessary to have faith and earn salvation, and we can perfect ourselves, and no special grace is needed to do so whatsoever. As usual with Pelagianism, I don't think Mormon goes quite that far. We're pulled back probably somewhere in between Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism. Go ahead and talk about any of those if you want. They're pretty straightforward, but kind of juxtapose the LDS view in there, at least how you see it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people I don't think understand what the Book of Mormon is saying about the way that grace operates. The Book of Mormon doesn't use the term prevenient grace, but if in reading, for instance, in Second Nephi 2, it's clear that what happens is that without the action of Christ, we would be stuck in sin. We couldn't overcome sin. We would be stuck in our evil nature. But what happens with the atonement of Christ is that we are delivered from the effects of the fall so that our will is restored to us, and we are allowed, because our will is free, to then choose freely whether we are going to accept the grace offered by God or to reject it. Now, the Book of Mormon doesn't put it in those terms. It speaks in terms of choosing eternal death and to become an angel to the devil, or eternal life and becoming a child of God. And so the choice in the Book of Mormon is made possible only by Christ's grace. So what we have prevenient means the kind of grace that is given to us before any act of human will. And it has to be before any act of human will, because in this case, it makes the human will possible. And that's what the kind of grace is that's given to us by Christ automatically. We can't do anything for it because we couldn't freely choose to accept it. 
And so if we were parsing this, where would we fit in? Well, we wouldn't be any of these, but we would be very close to Arminianism in some respects because there's this notion of prevenient grace that would regenerate our fallen will to allow us to say yes or no. Now, there's a very important notation to follow this, and that is that following our redemption, we, we're, we're free to choose. Once we've chosen God, we then begin on the process of sanctification, where we work, and it is based upon the choices that we make and the kind of works that we do to show works of love and to grow in the light of Christ and in the process of sanctification. And that is a matter of both God infusing into us his light, his intelligence and power and spirit, in a process of making us over in his image, but it's something that we must continue on with and endure to the end so that we don't fall from the grace that has been given to us. And so it is a matter of our free choice all along the way. And it's important to keep these things into perspective in the sense that the Mormon position is very much like the Armenian position, which was very much like the Wesleyan position or the Methodist position in many respects because there's this notion of regeneration of the will through the grace of Christ that makes it possible for us to freely choose to accept God's grace. Good positioning there. We don't want to spend too much more time on predestination, but I just wanted to point out this idea of predestination isn't necessarily pulled out of nowhere or without any scriptural precedent. It does come from the scriptures, but as always, the problem with reading the scriptures is exegesis or how you're reading it and how you're interpreting it. So let's just take this one example. In Ephesians 1.11, it says, In whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So that's just one example, but there are other scriptures that talk about predestination. So Calvinism would interpret this scripture to mean that everything that happens conforms to God's will because that is the way he brings it about. All events occur through his absolute sovereignty, or in other words, Everything that happens, God made it happen. There is, however, you point out, a lot of ambiguity in this assertion that God works out all things in conformity with his will. So you point out three. You say, A, it can mean that everything that happens is caused by the will of God, like Calvinists would believe, or B, everything that happens is in conformance with God's will, or C, everything that God does, he does according to his will. And so, me just reading that, I would probably need a little bit more explanation on what the difference between those three interpretations are. Go ahead. What we have is that certainly the notion with respect to Ephesians is whether or not we are predestined despite our choices and despite anything that happens in the world to be saved by God. The notion in Ephesians is not that everything that happens is caused by the will of God. It is not that everything that happens is in conformance with the will of God, unless you believe that evil things are in conformance with the will of God. What the Greek text seems to actually be saying is that everything that God does, he does according to his will. That doesn't mean that everything is predestined. It doesn't mean that everything conforms to his will. It just means that if he does it, it's because he willed to do it because he's perfectly free which is a very different kind of, of a reading of Ephesians 1 and 11. And we, yeah, we talked about that back in volume 1, talking about foreknowledge and all that. So, yeah, same thing. If God declares he will do something, he's not necessarily telling the future. It's like, he's, it's like if I say, I'm going to go take a nap, and then I go take a nap. Did I just predict the future? No, I just stated my intentions, and then I used the power that I had to take a nap to go and take a nap. And so God's power to do what he declares is more powerful, therefore he can do that. And so he's saying, 
in the plan or whatever, he's predestined the followers of Christ to be saved. And we've pointed this out before, but you say, you know, the critical issue here is whether election is a corporate or individual election or some combination of that. And in the last podcast, I think we talked about how the followers of Christ are predestined to be saved, but that doesn't mean any specific individual is predestined. I mean, the way I said it is probably a little more clear than it ever is stated in the scriptures and more biased towards this view. But as you can see, it's just saying, if you're a follower of Christ, then you'll be saved. Well, obviously, but that is very different than predestination. It's a question of a logical category here, and it's the same kind of thing that we pointed out before. You can argue that, look, Delaware is the richest state in the nation, and Mr. Smith is from Delaware, therefore he must be rich. That's just false. It doesn't follow at all. The mere fact that the group has the properties of being rich doesn't mean that any particular individual has the properties of being rich. It's the same thing with salvation. The mere fact that everybody who's found in Christ as a Christian will be saved, it doesn't mean that any single individual within the group of Christians has been saved. Okay? The difference is whether or not a person is actually found in Christ as a Christian, not merely whether they claim to be a Christian. There's a big difference. And it's just a logical category error. It's easily made. And apparently the Protestants believe that when the Bible is talking about salvation and predestination in Romans 11, it means individual salvation. My view is that Romans 11 is very clear that what it means is that the new Israel, the new people of God as a whole, will be found in God and therefore be saved. And it's just a logical error to adopt the Protestant view, in my view. Right, and I'll just close this section out with this quote, which brings it home. You say, the doctrine of predestination entails either that God chooses some people to be saved and the rest to be damned, or that he chooses to leave them to damnation when he could have saved them by granting them irresistible or prevenient grace. And you make this observation, such a view is simply unacceptable when speaking about the God of love. The view that God arbitrarily elects some for salvation and others for damnation is contrary to love because it's unfair and because it makes love impossible. So that makes sense, but then that moves us to this next section, which I like because, I don't know, it's just I like to think about this kind of thing. So you ask, well, you're talking about fairness, so does God owe obligations to us? That's the name of the section. So virtually all writers who adopt this view of predestination have rejected the view that it's unfair, and they've even rejected the view that God has any duty to be fair to us whatsoever. There is no fair. God, you know, it's like, what is fair? You, you don't get to say what's fair. And so it brings up the question, well, what does God owe us? Does he owe us salvation or does he not? I'll just read this quote and you can elaborate a little bit. You say, is it fair for God to fail to give us enabling or operative grace to affect our salvation when he could do so? Well, what is unfairness anyway? It seems to me that predestination is a poster child for unfairness, for such inequity consists in treating one person with favor that is not accorded to all others without an adequate basis or reasoning for making the distinction. So, in a broad view, talk more about God's obligations to us. What those in the tradition do when they respond to this kind of an argument is to emphasize that God owes us nothing. Grace is a sheer gift, and nobody has an obligation to give a gift. If it's something that's owed, it's not a gift as it's said in the Bible. 
therefore the only thing that it could be is a sheer gift. And if I don't have it, I can choose to give a gift to someone and not give a gift to another person. And I'm not being unfair to anybody because nobody's entitled to receive a gift in the first place. So if I have five children, which I do, and I choose to give gifts to three of them and leave the other two out, they may feel like I've been unfair to them. But in fact, I haven't because they're no worse off than they were before merely because they didn't receive a gift. While the other three benefit, it's completely within my discretion as to who I give gifts and whether I give a gift. The problem with this is that people, in fact, are worse off if God doesn't give them their gift. They're in hell for eternity, which one would think is a rather bad state of affairs. So it's not really an exact analogy. They, they overlook this fact, and that is that God's gift makes a great difference in the well-being of the person eternally. And so let's say I have five children, and this is a better analogy. I have five children and I'm in an accident and the car is on fire and the gas tank is about to explode. I have time and power and ability, and I know that I do, to save all five of my children. But I save three of them and leave two to die. And you'd look at me and say, what on earth is wrong with you? I'd say, well, look, I don't legally, actually as a parent, I would legally have more of an obligation. But let's just say I'm a, a passerby and I can see that I can save all of them. And I just arbitrarily choose to save three and leave the other two, just because. And I don't have a legal obligation to intervene. And I save three. That's more than would have been saved if I hadn't acted. So I'm a really great guy. And people look at me and say, you could have saved all five. Why didn't you? And you, just, and, and you say, well, just for reasons of my own, I don't really have to explain it. That was just the choice I made. Nobody's going to believe that that is a fair treatment or that it is justified. Nor would anyone dare say that that's a manifestation of love for all five children. It would be nonsensical to say that. In fact, it's a disregarding of the well-being of the other two children. That's a much better analogy for the kind of argument that these Protestants are making to say it's not unfair if God saves some and damns others. What's your problem with that? Now, let me make it more exact. God is, in fact, our parent. And if you believe, as the people in the tradition do, that our very existence as individuals is due to the fact that God created us, it seems that he owes us caretaking because he brought us into existence. He at least has whatever obligations come from having created a person out of nothing, which would seem to be a great obligation, because otherwise he should have left me in non-existence. Why would he create somebody just to have them spend eternity in hell? And he creates them knowing that they're going to spend eternity in hell. That seems to be maximally hateful to me and the very opposite of love. So this is the kind of argument that, in my view, is a rhetorical subterfuge, a slate of hand, and a really bad argument. For the remainder of this, we're going to go into different aspects of some different views of what God's obligations are to us. So you list out four different ideas of what God's obligations to us are. And so I'll read them, and then we can talk about them, and then when we go to... The third option that kind of goes into the next section, so I'll let Jacob take that when we get there. But let me read these. So, one, God has an obligation not to do harm to anyone, but does not have an obligation to further their best interests. Option two, God has an obligation to treat every single person with dignity and regard. Okay. Or three, God has an obligation to further our best interests to the extent that he can. And four, God has no obligations to us whatsoever. So, yeah, where, where does everyone fall in this, I guess? We'll just talk about for the rest of this section. So at least for the first two, are these views that Protestants have or Catholics? Or how do different religions view God's obligations? Well, the Protestants view God as having no obligations. And the Catholics would view God having an obligation only to do what he wants to do. <laughs> okay. 
In other words, no obligation to us at all. So basically, Catholics and Protestants agree that God doesn't have any obligations to us. Again, it's the same argument that was made before. It's the very point of grace that it's a gift. And we can't complain if somebody doesn't give us a gift. Nobody has an obligation to give us a gift. And so God doesn't have any obligations to us at all because salvation is a gift. And because there's no obligation to give a gift, God doesn't have an obligation to refrain from doing harm to us. He can create us and just leave us to damnation for eternity. He doesn't have an obligation to treat every person with dignity and regard. He can create people and let them live in total squalor for their entire lives or for all eternity. He doesn't have an obligation to further our best interest to the extent that he can. And let me say something about all of this, and that is, I agree that God has no obligations because God is loving, and love doesn't act out of obligation. Love acts out of simple choice. The choice to love is the choice to be committed to the best interest of others. That is the choice that's inherent in the very nature of love. If I love you, I won't supplant my will for your, yours about what you choose your life to be. So your goal for your life is my goal for your life. But in loving you, I desire the best possible reality for you. And I will support whatever life will lead to that. I will always urge you on to something greater until you fully realized your greatest potential and beyond. Because in Mormonism, there is no fulfillment of fullest potential. It's always beyond. So the bottom line is, is that I think we ought to agree that God has no obligations, but that inherent in the very nature of love is that a person is committed to the best interest of another person. It's just the way love works. And so the notion that God could be loving and that he could create some people and choose to save some and choose to damn others for eternity, that's double predestination, or simply choose to save some and then just not make a choice about the others and leave them to damnation because he hasn't given them grace. It's not loving. It's maximally unloving toward those who are damned. And so we can say that God is a loving individual, but God's act in predestinating some to less than full salvation is less than love. And we know that because we know the nature of love. And so it's the wrong question. It's in the, I think it's in the Japanese language, there's this term mu. And mu means unask the question because you've assumed too much. <laughs> okay. And so when the Protestant says, well, God doesn't have to save us, he doesn't owe the obligation to save us, I say, Moo, unask that question. It's the wrong way of approaching this issue. The question you should be asking is this, is it consistent with God's loving nature to save some and leave others to damnation? And the answer is, no, the nature of love is contrary to that. And going back to my car analogy, who could possibly say that a mother who could save all five of her children from the burning car chooses to save three and, and leaves two there is loving toward the two that she just arbitrarily left to leave there. Nobody's going to call that mother loving because we understand what love is to this extent. So my response is, you're right, God doesn't owe us obligations, but what you've engaged in is a misdirection to prevent us from actually seeing what the real issue is. And the real issue is, is predestination consistent with God being a loving being? And the answer to that is no. All right, so let's dive into that then. So obligation isn't necessarily the right question, but We've talked about this before in this next section is universal love and obligations, and we've just talked about it a lot. But to meet the definition of love, then we have to kind of talk about what does love require? What would love look like then? Anyway, let's go ahead and have you two talk about that. So like we said, love and grace isn't something that is earned. It's something that is given as a gift. But still, that there seems to be some sort of requirement, not some earning requirement, but a requirement because I love you, this is what I'm going to do. Back to what you said. You know, what what does love require to meet the definition of love? 
if I'm loving, what does that require me to do? And how did Jesus embody that with the higher law? Here's how I would suggest that a loving being treats another. A loving being does not supplant his or her will for the will of the beloved. I'm a father, and I played football, and I would have loved for my kids to have spent all of their high school career doing two-a-days <laughs> and playing football, but you guys didn't want to do that. You wanted to do something else, and so your will for your life became my will for your life. I didn't urge you to play football beyond merely suggesting you know, you could be good at it. And so if I truly love you, I don't control you in the sense that I think I know better for your life than you do. And I don't judge you as having, you know, been stupid because you chose something for your life that wasn't my choice for you. When God gives us life and then allows us, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but he actually honors every single choice we make. God's purpose for us is our purpose for us. It's just that nobody could possibly have the purpose of going to hell for an eternity because we are committed to our own well-being. We are committed to our own highest good. And so any sane person is going to be committed to their best interest and what works best for them to their greatest happiness. And therefore, that becomes God's purpose for us. This is the way love actually works in working relationships. Loving people respect the dignity and the autonomy of other people to choose what their lives are about. This seems to be the very message that Jesus was trying to bring because, you know, people were living by the letter of the law, and they were pointing out the obligations that everyone had because of the law of Moses and everything. And Jesus seemed to be coming along and saying, you know what? You're doing it all wrong. You're, you're viewing this as an obligation rather than this loving relationship with God that is the point of it. And he gives the example of, you don't just simply not commit adultery. Like, yeah, that's the obligation. But if you truly are keeping this commandment or the purpose of this rule, if you love your wife, you're not even going to lust after another woman in your heart. That's what love requires. So I guess it's more of keeping the commandments to show your love for God. You love God so much that because of that love, you are keeping the commandments. All the commandments do is teach us the ways that loving people treat each other. Okay. So what Jesus is saying that if I truly love my wife, I'm not going to be lusting after other women because my thoughts and my devotion and my heart are set on my wife. And this phrase that I'm using, my heart is set on my wife, is a loaded phrase because what it really means is there's nobody else for me but her. I don't need anything else because my love for her is so complete. That's the way real, genuine, honest love just is. It's natural for guys to, to notice if there's a beautiful woman walking down the street, we're biologically programmed to look. But a guy who loves his wife isn't going to make his wife, you know, grab him and, and turn his face forward. He's not looking. He has found. And so when we get into these kinds of relationships, it's not a burden for us to serve other people. You know, oh, I've got to go home teaching. Well, what that really means is you don't love the people that you home teach because you'd be delighted to go spend some time with them and see if you can make their lives better if you truly did. Oh, oh man, I, I really hate going to this wedding. Well, if you truly want to support the people in love that, that are getting married, you want to share their great day and share your love with them. It's not a burden. And so love doesn't act out of duty. I don't do it because I have to. I do it because it's a full sold choice of my heart to do it. This is the kind of love that may take a lifetime to learn. It's the kind of love that we work on. 
A perfected love is a love that is committed to the other in honoring the other, the other's choices for their lives. I can't imagine a God who simply disregards a person's purposes and makes all the decisions for them about what their eternal destiny is going to be. That's the opposite of love. I can't imagine a person who disregards the well-being of another and simply decides that their eternal well-being has no real merit, and it's only his choice or her choice that has any merit. That's the opposite of love. And so when we get right down to this notion of predestination, it is about the most unloving way of approaching understanding deity possible. In my view, it is a truly deplorable, contemptible, and just an abhorrent view of God, and I don't see any way around it. In saying that, I don't want to say that my Protestant and Catholic friends are stupid or insensitive. I know many of them who are very spiritually sensitive, but that's my view. I want to recognize that they're smart, intelligent people, and, and they see it differently, but I don't know how I could possibly see it the way they do. Before I close it out, just that's you know also the message of Mormonism is the difference between you know God doesn't want us as little creatures that He can control like puppets. In Mormonism, God wants true peers in the relationship, and I think that's also once we look at the new perspective on Paul and all these other different ideas of grace and salvation, we start to see that that's what God wants with us too, and He wants to enable us to do that, and that's what grace is enabling us to make that choice. All right? Uh, anything else you guys want to say, or we can be done? Well said. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.